I'm lonely. I feel weak. I feel tired. I feel accused. I feel attacked. I feel the temptation to sin being real and heavy. I'm sad. I'm grieving. I feel isolated. I feel alone. And I don't think that anyone else understands how I feel. I wonder how many of us have felt any of those sentiments this week. Maybe some of us have felt them all, all in one go. We felt those feelings of despair. My guess is we probably all felt them in some way or some form because we're all human and it's not necessarily that those things are sinful but they are real feeling lonely feeling tired feeling accused feeling led into temptation they are real and they can easily have a spiral into into despair especially when we think as as we engage with those things and no one understands how I feel no one, no one quite gets it. They can have a spiral into a place of despair unless we have someone who does understand. Unless we have someone who does get us, someone who really gets us. Last week, we kicked off our study in Mark's gospel. And as we started in verse 1 to 8, we saw that Mark... Uh, the, the gospel writer, he introduces us to Jesus and he wants us to know that this is the real Jesus. We talked a little bit about how we can come across counterfeit Jesus in, in the world around us. And really we can, if it was left up to us, shape our own Jesus, a Jesus that conforms to our will, a Jesus that pats us on our back as we just do what we want to do. But, but Mark isn't interested in that Jesus. He wants to reveal to us the real Jesus, a Jesus who he showed us was God's anointed king, a Jesus who he showed us is the Lord and a Jesus who he showed us wonderfully doesn't just stay distant from his people, but he comes to his people and he meets us. And we're going to see again today in our passage in verse 9 to 13, that this Jesus, the real Jesus, he is no ordinary king. He is literally God. Jesus is God and the mystery and the spectacle and the wonder of the incarnation is that Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is all powerful. He is all knowing, but he also gets us. He is one who is fully God, but also because he is fully human, he gets us. He really gets us. And friends, that changes everything for us. A God who knows our pain, a God who knows our struggle, a God who loves us as we've sung, even though he knows us. A God like that is a God who opens up a door to all sorts of comfort. All kinds of comfort that our souls desperately crave. A God who is all powerful and at the same time knows us and understands us. To know that God is to know true comfort, folks. 
and we see that door, that door to true comfort being open to us here in Jesus' baptism. We said, didn't we, last week that Mark likes to move fast. Out of all the gospel writers, like he really moves at pace. And some of us who like the detail might want Mark just to slow down a little bit and maybe just labor on some things a little bit more than maybe he does. Well, this is one of the times where he does do that. Uh, Jesus' baptism is one of the few circumstances that we see all the four gospel writers stop, pause, and make a record of. And Jesus, uh, Mark sorry, is particularly in, interested in baptism here and Jesus' baptism, so much so that, that in just these first nine verses of Mark's gospel, he mentions baptism six times. He stops. He slows down. And he puts a, a relatively considerable amount of emphasis on, on Jesus' baptism. Why does he do that? You know, and he skips through just in those first few verses, giving us a genealogy or even telling us about the birth of Jesus. He skips over that, but for, for some reason, he, he lays on quite a bit of emphasis on Jesus' baptism. Why does he do that? Well, because the baptism of Jesus shows us that Jesus is the God who gets us. He is a God who really gets us. And if we know him, he is the one who brings us comfort. The comfort that we all crave. Jesus is the God who gets us. And when we know him, he brings us comfort. And we see that comfort coming to us in two ways in these verses. Firstly, we see comfort coming from Jesus. Comfort from the penalty of sin. And secondly, comfort from the pressure of suffering. Comfort from the penalty of sin and then comfort from the pressure of suffering. Let's start there with the comfort of, uh, that comes from Christ from the penalty of sin. You know, it might feel like Mark does rush through uh, some of these parts of the gospel. But actually, you'll see as we wait, make our way through over the next few years that he is a master of communication. We said, didn't we, that each of the words that he chooses to use, each of the details that he introduces, they are important. And he is masterfully communicating something to us. And he has this wonderful gift, we'll see it come up again and again, of transporting us from from one place to another. The best writers are able to do that so well, aren't they? Like you think of, think of Lord of the Rings, one of our favorites for, for a lot of us, and think of Tolkien, and think how Tolkien, as he writes, is able to, to transport us to Mordor just, just through the, the senses, like the smell of sulfur, the, the heat that we would feel there, the, the, the sight of the, the fire and, and the intensity, and he's able to transport us from just reading some words on a book, like we almost feel like we're there. Or even think maybe closer to home for some of us on the terraces, in football stadiums. And think of some of the songs that we sing that are just never true, but we think that they're true, that, that somehow we could be the best team in the world. We sing that with all of our hearts, believing that that could be true in some alternative universe, even when you're in the fourth division. We sing that, thinking that that's actually going to be true. Or we sing, thinking that Mo Salah is actually legitimately an Egyptian king who's going to bring us all the glory that we want. And we sing it with such conviction. And, and these songs are written for us in a way to transport us into a, into a different place. And Mark, folks, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like he literally is the best of writers. He does that here for us in these few verses. He masterfully transports us from Jesus' baptism to somewhere else. It's a little bit like jumping on a bus. 
And Mark is having us travel with him to another destination. So if we think of, of us seeing first that Jesus brings us comfort from the penalty of sin, and we're looking in these verses and we think, well, I can't even see sin written down here. How do we get that? Well, in verse 10 to 11, Mark is inviting us to travel with him. And he's using deliberate details to take us somewhere else, somewhere where we do see it. Somewhere where we do see that Jesus brings us comfort from the penalty of sin. And there's going to be a few of these bus rides that Mark takes us on through the gospel. Where he has us jump on and just take a journey somewhere else with him. And the first one that he's taken us on here in verse 10 to 11, he's having us travel back to the beginning. All the way back to Eden. Let me read verse 10 and 11 for us. And maybe as you just hear it read for a second time, maybe you can see some similarities between between the beginning, between the story we see right at the beginning of Genesis and what we see here in Jesus' baptism. Talking of Jesus, Mark says this, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus meets John at the River Jordan. He's baptized by John. And when he comes up out of the water, Mark says the heavens are torn open. And that's one of those words, if you've got your journals there, you might want to circle that underline. This word, uh, torn open in the Greek, it's schizo. It's where we get the word schizophrenic from, literally kind of being in two parts. The, the heavens are split open. And it's an important word because it's going to pop up just one other time in the gospel here later on. Heavens are torn open, they're split. And then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus, Mark says, like a dove. And then we hear the voice of God declaring his satisfaction, his divine approval of Jesus' baptism. Now we're in that bus with Mark, right? We've gone all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And let's think about what we see there. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. Now it's interesting, Mark's readers in the first century, they would have read the Old Testament scriptures in Aramaic and their account of Genesis 1 would have read like this, darkness was on the face of the deep, the spirit of God fluttered over the face of the waters like a dove and God spoke, let there be light and God saw that the light was good. In Genesis 1, you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters like a dove. And then you hear the voice of God declaring his satisfaction in what he sees. That sounds familiar, right? When we come back to Jesus' baptism here, that sounds familiar. The Spirit hovering like a dove, the the voice of satisfaction of God. And it doesn't end there. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we have this just amazing, almost unreal window into, into the, the eternal community of the triune God. So that's what Bi- the Bible teaches us. There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in verse 26 of Genesis 1, we, we hear them in conversation. Moses records this. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, collaborating together right at the beginning. 
all three present and at work. And that's exactly the same thing we see here in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. The Spirit, the Father, the Son, all present in the baptism of Jesus. You see what Mark is doing here? As he describes Jesus' baptism, he wants us to take that journey with him back to the beginning. Why? Well, because Jesus' baptism signifies a new beginning. It's a new beginning that Mark wants us to see here. So if you know the creation story, you'll know that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the triune God creates We see that that everything that comes into existence comes, it is spoken forth by God. And we see in verse 26, the the Trinity are there. They are working together. They are collaborating together to create. And everything that God creates is good. He looks on it. He says verbally, he, he voices his satisfaction. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then when he gets to the sixth day, he places the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, into the garden. And he says, it is very good. Humanity, Adam and Eve, are placed into the garden. They're placed into the very presence of God. They are there with him in his presence. And as humanity are there with him in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, they experience everything that our souls crave. They experience true life, true peace, true rest. They experience comfort in the presence of God. And what happens in Genesis 3? Satan comes into the garden. Satan comes into the garden and tempts humanity. He tempts Adam and Eve. If you remember, if you know how it's written in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God says to Adam and Eve, you can do anything, but just don't eat from the tree. That's the one thing, that's the one command I give you. Don't eat from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't don't touch that. Don't take the tree. And yet, what do we know they do? They disobey God. They break his command. They sin against him. And ultimately, their sin separates them from God and places them and all of humanity who come after Adam and Eve, including us, places us under God's judgment for our sin. The comfort that humanity had in the garden slips away as we are taken out of the presence of God. And all of us, folks, all of us inherit that same sin nature that Adam had. A same sin nature that, folks, has no lasting comfort. A sinful nature will never lead to comfort. It only leads to eternal judgment. And the only way back to the comfort that we have in the presence of God is if somehow creation is redeemed, creation is restored, or if somehow there is a new creation. (coughs) And Mark in these verses here is hinting that that is exactly what is happening at Jesus' baptism. The spirit hovers just like in Genesis 1. God speaks just like in Genesis 1. Jesus comes up out of the water. And then what happens next in verse 12 and 13? Satan comes to tempt. Just like in the garden. Just like in the first creation, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And it's a little bit like Mark is presenting Jesus like a second Adam. Like another Adam. But the difference is this. 
unlike the first Adam, Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus doesn't fail. He is tempted by Satan, just like Adam was, but he doesn't sin. And folks, after the 40 days that we read here in Mark chapter 1, the opposition from Satan doesn't end here. It continues throughout all of Jesus' ministry. Satan continues to oppose Jesus, continues to attack him, continues to try and drag him away from from truth, drag him away from the ministry and mission that he's been given. He continues to oppose Jesus and that, that climax reaches a crescendo in another garden. The climax of Satan opposing Jesus reaches its conclusion at Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, Adam has given a test to obey God by not taking the tree. Don't take from the tree of good and evil. And he fails. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has given a test from God to take the tree, to bear the cross. And he succeeds. And at the start of his ministry, At Jesus' baptism, we see the heavens being torn open. Schizo, they are split open. And it's as if the Father is bringing his approval on the ministry of his Son. And then the only other time we see that word being repeated again is at the end of Jesus' ministry. As Jesus hangs on the cross and in the temple, the curtain is split. It is torn in two. Schizo, that word again. Divine approval from God at Jesus' baptism and divine approval from God in his death because he succeeds. And listen, Jesus doesn't just live this life and defeat Satan for his own benefit. Like he isn't just living this life for himself. When he shows us in his baptism what he's doing, he's showing us that he comes not to live for himself, but to live for us. He comes to live a perfect life for us and he comes to die for us. He comes to die as a representative for us. And you see some of, some of that hinted at here, even just in these verses. Jesus being a representative for humanity. So in verse 9, look there, Mark just happens to say that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And remember, Mark doesn't just throw in random detail. He wants us to to see the real meaning behind what he's saying. And he's telling us here that Jesus didn't just appear. Like he is fully God and fully man. He didn't just appear one day and deal with everything. He came from somewhere. He had a real home. He had real family because he is a real human. He came into the world as a man to identify with us. And then even his time in the wilderness in verse 12. How many days did he spend in the wilderness? 40 days. And if you know the Old Testament, that takes you somewhere, right? How many years did Israel, God's people, wander in the wilderness? 40 years. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness here is reminding us of God's people time in the wilderness. And as we see him engage in this period of time, Jesus is saying, I'm identifying with you. 
And even back up in verse 4 of chapter 1, we read that the baptism that Jesus takes, the baptism that John, the baptizer is given out at the River Jordan, it was a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. That's the baptism that Jesus received. And as we, as we hear that, we should automatically think, well, why would Jesus need to have a baptism of repentance and forgiveness? He didn't sin. He had nothing to repent of. Jesus is the only person who didn't need to be forgiven. So why would he receive a baptism of repentance and forgiveness? Because he came to identify with us. Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity. So in his death on the cross, he could be the perfect representative for us. He could be a sufficient substitute for us. One who could stand in our place and take the full judgment of sin that that we deserved. One who could perfectly represent us. One who could die for us so we could receive the comfort, the comfort of freedom from sin. One who would die for us in our place so that we could receive the comfort of his presence now through the abiding of his Holy Spirit. One who would die for us in our place so that we could receive the comfort of eternal rest and eternal life and eternal peace from God that we lost because of our sin. Comfort of knowing that Jesus has done all that he needed to do in order to redeem us and all that is broken around us through his life and death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, when we look at the baptism of Jesus, we can take great comfort knowing that he has taken the penalty of our sin. It's gone. We can take great comfort in knowing that he has dealt with our separation from God and brought us back into his presence. And if you're not a believer this afternoon, you need to know and you need to hear judgment for sin is real. Jesus is willing to take that judgment for you so that you can receive the comforting presence of God. Trust him. Follow him. Brothers and sisters, we can take great comfort in seeing what Jesus has accomplished in suffering for us at the cross. But we can also take great comfort in knowing that he, he, he relates to our suffering now. We can see the comfort that Jesus brings from the penalty of sin. And we can also see now the comfort that Jesus brings from the pressure of suffering here and now. If you've ever been through a season of suffering, which I'm sure all of us have, um, it's helpful, isn't it, when we have friends or counsellors who, who come alongside us and, and they kind of put an arm around us and they say, listen, don't worry. It'll be all right. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep holding on. Like those friends are helpful. But the friends who are really helpful are the ones who are able to come alongside us in our suffering and put an arm around us and say, I get it. I get it. Because I felt that too. I understand because I've been there. And I know what it's like. Like they're the friends that we really get comfort from, right? When those friends put an arm around us, we lean into them. 
Because we know there is comfort from those who know what it is like. We know there is real, tangible comfort from those who get it. You know, we've a lot of friends who are either in or have gone through a process of being in Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. And, and they're... The, the help that they offer relies a lot on that principle. Receiving help from people who've walked it themselves. Receiving that arm around the shoulder from people who understand it because they've struggled in the same way. When we find those people, we lean into them for comfort. So folks, today, or this week, in your suffering, can I encourage you to lean into Jesus? Receive his comfort because he gets it. He gets it. Firstly, he knows the suffering that we endure in temptation. We see here the description, a brief description to be fair, of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And we know from the other gospel accounts that Satan comes and brings three temptations to Jesus. And we know that he, he is able to defeat those temptations and, and, and renounce Satan with the word of God. But we also know that he was tempted in other ways. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. There is great comfort in knowing that, folks. Jesus knows what it is to, to be tempted but without sin. Jesus knows what it is to be pulled towards idolatry. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted with lust. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted with greed, to be tempted with anger, to be tempted with, with, with deceit. He knows what it is to be tempted in every way. Everything that you can think of, every temptation that you have endured and will endure or maybe even are enduring right now. He knows what it is like. So lean into him. Pray to him. Share your struggle with the one who truly knows. Ask for his help. Take comfort that Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. And tempted without sin. There is comfort in knowing that and there is also comfort in knowing that Jesus suffered like us. Look down at verse 13 with me there. There's a little detail that that probably washes over us but, but would have spoke volumes to Mark's first century readers. Verse 13 we read this, that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. A bit random, Mark, isn't it? For someone who likes to, to weigh his words and make sure that all of his words mean something, like why do we need to know that Jesus was in the wilderness with wild animals? Like, what's that about? Well, around the time that Mark was writing his gospel in AD 70, remember he's writing to predominantly Roman Christians, Gentile Christians. And as he's writing during this time, persecution from the Roman Empire was building. 
Caesar was trying to clamp down this, this new movement of, of little Christs, Christians. And, and one of the most famous threats that the empire had against Christians was to arrest them, imprison them, and to bring them into the amphitheaters, into the, 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 the centers of entertainment for the empire of that day, to bring them into those arenas, to put them in the middle of the baiting crowds, and to release wild animals to come and kill them and murder them and torture them. That was a threat that rippled through the empire to all of those who would confess Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. And I wonder if as Mark writes in that detail, that Jesus was in a place of suffering with the wild animals, he is helping his readers to know that Jesus gets it. Jesus knows their suffering. He knows what it is to experience physical pain, folks. He knows what it is to experience emotional distress. He knows what it is to be maligned, falsely accused. He knows what it is to be betrayed by those that he loves. He knows what it is to be opposed. He knows loneliness. He knows loss. He knows grief. He knows trouble. He knows our suffering. So lean into him. Pray to him. Share your struggle and your suffering with one who knows. Ask for his help. As you lean into him, receive his comfort. He knows. We find comfort in that he was tempted like us. He suffered like us. And finally, I love this. We find great comfort in knowing that we are loved like Jesus. See, unlike Jesus, folks, We will experience temptation this week and in the weeks to come and we will fail. We won't pass the test. We will continue to struggle with sin and battle against sin until we go to be with him. Listen to the declaration from the father in verse 11 over his son. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Right in the scouse for us. He was well pleased. Divine approval from the father over his son. Verse 11 is going to be echoed again in the transfiguration in chapter 9. And we're going to see when we get there that the father is demonstrating something really important in the words that he says over his son now. And we'll get there in chapter 9, but just for this afternoon, just for this afternoon, Let us just hear that declaration over us. Brothers and sisters, know this. Those who are in Christ, those who are united to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we get to hear that same declaration from the Father spoken over us. (coughs) You are my beloved Son. I'm so pleased with you. 
Because the Father sees us in his Son. He sees no blemish in us. Even though we will fail the test, he sees no blemish in us. And when he beholds us, he beholds us as he beholds the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees us clothed and covered in his righteousness. So when the Father looks on us, he is able to say, I love you, son. And I am well pleased in you. Brothers and sisters, hear the loving voice of your father this afternoon, not because of your sin, but because of his son. So for those who are lonely, for those who are weak, for those who are tired, for those who feel accused, for those who feel attacked, for those who feel the weight of temptation to sin, for those who are sad, for those who are grieving, for those who feel isolated, for those who feel alone, Jesus gets it. He really gets it. And so this week, lean into him and receive his comfort. This meal is a tangible way that we get to receive it. This is a meal that reminds us of the comfort and the hope that God's people have in the midst of our struggle with sin. And in the midst of our struggle with the suffering of being in a broken world, we break this bread remembering that Jesus suffered for us on the cross. Remembering that his body was broken so that we as God's people can be made whole. As we take the cup together, remember that our sins are forgiven. The penalty for our sin has been paid in full. Remember that our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Remember the strength of the love of the Father that comes towards us that we read of in Romans chapter 8. It comes to us because of Jesus, because of the perfect life he lived for us, because of his atoning death, and because, praise God, he rose from the grave three days later. This meal, folks, is a meal of comfort. As it reminds us that the penalty of our sin has been paid. And as it reminds us that the presence of God is with us now. Through his Holy Spirit, bringing us comfort. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our struggle, we have comfort now. And so for those of us who are there, as we take this meal, can I encourage you, ask for help. Come to Jesus knowing that he gets it. Come to him and ask for his help. Hold on to the bread, hold on to the cup, knowing that your sins are forgiven and knowing that he brings comfort to his people. In a minute, Johnny's going to come and read to us from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a promise given to God's people 700 years before Jesus' baptism announcing, proclaiming comfort over God's people. And as we hear those words being read to us, we get to see how that comfort comes. We're reminded again that it comes because our iniquities have been taken away from us through God's promised King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Johnny's going to come and read that for us, then we're going to sing together. As we're singing, can I encourage you, if you're a believer, come and take the bread, come and take a cup.
This is a meal for the family of God. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this meal isn't for you this afternoon. We just ask that maybe you watch, sing, take the moment to pray. But if you are a believer, then the Lord invites you to come. Come and take the bread. Take it back to your seat and eat it. Take it in faith and in confidence that he has dealt with your sin and he has made a way for you to know his comfort now. And then just hold on to the cup. We'll take the cup together after we've sung this song together. But let me pray. And then Johnny's going to come and read to us and we'll stand, sing together. And as we're singing, just come to the table, take the bread, come back to your seat and hold on to the cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are a God of love. Thank you that you have eternally known love because you have ex- eternally existed with the Father, right, with the Son, with the Spirit. And we thank you that, that your love comes to us in the most spectacular way. Thank you for how you've shown it to us through the life, death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. And Jesus, as we take this meal now, we look to you. We remember there are our sins have been dealt with. That you have paid the penalty for our sin in full in your body on the tree. Thank you that you passed the test, that you've lived the perfect life and that all of us who put our faith in you, we are clothed in the righteousness of that life. We are brought into the presence of God. So thank you for the comfort that we bring, that you bring from the relief of judgment, but also the comfort that you bring now through the presence of your spirit for all of those who are suffering. So Lord Jesus, as we hear from your word now, as we sing together, as we take this meal, prompt our hearts to believe that you are who you say you are, a God of all comfort, a God who has met us in our sin and meets us now in our struggle. As we take this meal, fill us with confidence that you will meet us and you will help us and that you, Lord Jesus, know that we aren't alone, that we aren't isolated, you know. You get our struggle. You understand our pain. So by the power of your spirit, bring comfort to those who need it now as we worship together. And it's in your name that we pray.